Now, as you can see, we're going on into the first four trumpets, and I know I had introduced the first trumpet last time. We'll revisit that again. But, oh, it's good to see you, Shelby. It's good to see you. Shelby's a college student. Uh, Now, as we get into the first four trumpets, again, I mentioned in my prayer that if you think about what idolatry is, is idolatry, of course, is where we make ourselves to be God. And because of that, we end up worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator who's forever praised, as we saw in Romans 1.25. So today in the first four trumpets, what God is going to say to those who are trusting in creation is if you want to trust in that, I can take it away. And he will during the judgments that he's pouring out on the world. And so you're going to see some very ironic reversals. Those who trust in the creation rather than the creator are going to have the creation taken away by the creator. Remember back in the Exodus, you had the case where God's people had grumbled because the waters were bitter. Well, for God's people, he made them sweet. Today in one of the judgments, you're going to see otherwise sweet water for his enemies are made bitter. That's another ironic reversal. The final ironic reversal that you're going to see today is this likening God to his salvation in a metaphor is often likened to an eagle where God swoops down and delivers his people. But at the same time, just as he's an eagle who can deliver his people, he's also like an eagle or a vulture who will feed upon his enemies. Okay, and so what we're really left with is an either or. Either we're on the side of God through faith in his son or we're his enemy. Either he makes the waters sweet for us as one of his people or he will make them bitter as one of his enemies. These are the types of things we have to think about. Now, I'll explain at the end why I think this is so important to talk about either or. Because either or is something that our culture hates today in the postmodern milieu that we live in. They like to say it's not either or, it's both and, don't they? Nobody's wrong, nobody's right. So with that, let me begin by showing you how this is laid out. These trumpet judgments, remember there's seven. Every time you come to a seven, it opens up to the next form of judgments. The first trumpet judgment, you're going to see a third of the earth and the trees are burned up and all of the grass. The second trumpet, you lose a third of the sea and the sea creatures are destroyed, plus you lose a third of the ships. So it's going to be quite a judgment there. The third trumpet judgment, you're going to lose a third of the fresh water. At the fourth trumpet judgment, you lose a third of the sun, moon, and stars. You might say, well, how do you lose a third? I don't know. (laughs) We'll figure that out when, when we come to that time period. God knows. Now, here's what I want you to see is that these first four trumpet judgments, God is rattling the cage, so to speak, of humanity. He is unraveling the very creation that they're trusting in rather than him, the creator. And so just as he created all things, he can unravel all things. And if you think about it, the day of the Lord, according to 2 Peter 3, extends even beyond the millennial kingdom where the heavens and the earth are made new and the old heavens and earth are destroyed. And so, yes, God will, in fact, unravel all of creation. Now, notice when we get to the fifth trumpet, we have a difference. Now, God unleashes the demonic beings. We have demons that are released, and they'll end up torturing unbelievers. When you get to the sixth trumpet, you have a demon army that ends up killing a third of unbelievers. And then when you get to the seventh trumpet, that, of course, opens up to the seven bowl judgments, which culminates in what? The Battle of Armageddon where the Messiah comes at the great day of God and defeats the enemies once and for all. And so there's a pattern here. Notice that the first four 
trumpet judgments affect man's habitat. And if you think about it, the next three end up affecting man very directly. And so that's how I think we can conceive of these judgments within the trumpets. The first four are an attack on the habitat of man. The next three start opening up an attack directly upon man, even using the demonic realm. So with that, let me revisit now the first trumpet. I know I'd hit this last time, but I want to hit it again because we had so much data thrown at you. Let's read it together. This is Revelation 8, 7. So remember, the seventh seal had opened up now to these trumpet judgments. We're in the first trumpet, and we're around the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. It says, the first sounded, this is the first angel, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now, notice here where it says that there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown down to the earth. There's a passive verb there, which implies an outside agent who's casting them down. They obviously didn't throw themselves down. Now, of course, it's the angel that threw them down, but the ultimate agent is whom? It's God. And that's why, remember, chapters 4 and 5, where we saw the throne room? That was so important because we saw that all the judgments ultimately come from Christ. So God is the one who is throwing down these judgments. We also saw last time that it was interesting. Remember back in Ezekiel chapter 10, God was very angry with idolatry back then, but he was angry with his own people. So there was an angel who took the coal from the altar and he threw it down upon Jerusalem. Well, now, in the 70th week of Daniel, you have an angel who's taking from the altar the wrath of God again, but now he's not throwing it specifically down upon Jerusalem, but he's throwing it down upon the whole world. And again, this is this idea of reversal. What God did to his people Israel in these many foreshadowings of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, he finally does once and for all upon the whole world. Okay, does that make sense? So, again, these judgments that we see in the Old Testament are oftentimes a foreshadowing of the future day of the Lord that will be worldwide. All right? Now, notice he says that it's hail and fire mixed with blood. This should remind us of that seventh plague that we had all read about and seen, I know, in the, what was that movie with Charlton Heston, The Ten Commandments? I think most of us have seen that in here at one point. Well, the seventh plague was, of course, this plague of hail. And I want you to turn your Bibles to that in Exodus chapter 9. I'll read that passage to remind us of this. And again, one of the themes that we're going to see throughout the 70th week of Daniel is this idea that this is the last Exodus. People are crying out to God who are believers. God is going to deliver them through the wilderness to the promised land. And so God here is pouring out his wrath. So turn to Exodus 9, 23 through 26. We might not read it all here. I'll probably read to verse 24. Exodus 9, 23, it says, Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Verse 24, it says, So there was hail and fire flashing, flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very severe, such has not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Now notice, let's keep reading, I guess. Verse 25 says, The hail struck all that was in the field, 
through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. But notice verse 26, the protection for God's people. He says, only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. So that's the provision and protection upon God's people. He certainly judged his enemies, but he protected his own people. And he'll do the same thing again in the 70th week of Daniel. All right, now, I want to show you also, notice what's in the green, where it talks about a third of the earth and of the trees, and of course you have the grass. I want to remind you, this is one of the reasons why you had the servants of God sealed back in Revelation 7. So recall you had the 144,000, oh, I'm dropping pieces. You had 144,000 who were sealed. Well, one of the reasons they were sealed is so that they would survive. So let's just remind ourselves of the connection. Revelation 7, 2 through 3. It says, And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Okay, so that's why they were sealed. Well, now that the trumpet judgments are unfolding, you can see that the earth and trees are being harmed. In fact, in the very next trumpet judgment, the second trumpet, the sea will be affected as well. So now it becomes very obvious, of course, that's why the 144,000 had to be sealed. Just as God protected Israel in Goshen when he poured hail upon the Egyptians, he's protecting his people again, isn't he? There's a very similar pattern, okay? His wrath is not poured out upon his people, but upon his enemies, even within the 70th week, all right? Now, one thing I want to mention here before we move on to the second trumpet is something, it was a question that was brought up to me after class, and one of the questions was, what about how these things happen? Notice it talks about this hail and fire mixed with blood. One of the questions was, are you ever going to get into how these things occur? And to be very frank with you, no. (laughs) And here's why because I don't know how they occur. And so I want to talk to you about two different categories. We want to talk about mystery versus revelation. While we can certainly affirm, I think, that these things are literal, that yes, you will literally have hail and fire and blood, and what we read will literally come about. How God does that, I don't know. And so instead of speculating as to how God does that, which I don't think is very profitable, I will simply affirm that it will happen. And then we can say, yeah, what would be the effects of losing a third of the trees, a third of the earth, and having all of your grass burned up? Well, it would be very bad, wouldn't it? It's going to greatly affect mankind all the way around. Food, shelter, all those things. It's going to be very difficult to live. Now, the reason we're, again, not going to focus on how God does it is think about the things that God has not revealed In Deuteronomy 29, 29, Moses says that the things that God has revealed belong to us and our children forever, but the things that he has not revealed belong to the Lord alone. Okay, so if we start speculating on how God does this, I think we're getting into mystery. We just don't know. Why? Because he hasn't revealed it. Now, it may be fun to speculate, you know, scientifically how God may do this, but it could be supernatural. God created all things out of nothing, That is something that goes beyond physics. It's metaphysics. And so it's beyond nature. And so again, I just would say this is supernatural. It's literal, but it's supernatural. So I can't tell you how God will do it. 
I can just tell you that God will do it. And the effect is absolutely going to be devastating upon those who are on the planet. So here's a word of caution. When you see teachers primarily focus on that aspect where they want to tell you things on how they may occur, how will God create the hail and the fire mixed with blood? I think you're focusing on the wrong things. I think you're focusing on the mystery rather than what God has revealed. What we're here to do is to see the connections in Scripture because we want to understand what the author has said. Remember of the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, over 80% of it is directly tied to the Old Testament. So what that means is we want to be back and forth between the old and the new because God is deliberately showing his people connections. What he did in the past was a pattern for what he would do in the future. So I think that that's where our time should be spent. So that's part of the interpretive approach. And we'll talk more about interpretation of this book in a little bit. But I want to get now to the second trumpet. The second trumpet in verses 8 through 9 continues this attack on creation. It says, The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, notice here you have something, it says, like a great burning or great mountain that was burning. In fact, we have to say right there that term like is probably certainly a simile. Now, what's a simile? Well, a simile is something that something is like, but it's not that thing. So whatever's being seen in this vision by John, it seems like it was a burning mountain, but he's not saying it is. So if I said that running back was running like a freight train, I'm not saying that the running back literally is a freight train. I'm saying that he's like that. And so in the same way, we have to say, well, this simile is stating something real. This is something that's literally going to occur, but what exactly we don't know. My best guess, it would be a meteor something to that effect. And one of the reasons I would say that is because of the evidence within the scripture. Notice in verse 9, whatever this huge thing is, it even affects the ships. Now, how is a ship typically destroyed? Well, it usually takes pretty big waves to do that. Well, how would you get a big wave? Well, probably something very big hitting the water, okay? And so that would seem to explain how you could have such death within the sea, but also such destruction to the ships themselves, okay? So one way of thinking about this, oops, I don't want to put that up yet, is we're going to have a meteor here that destroys all of the salt water. Well, in the very next trumpet judgment, you're going to have another meteor, I believe, that attacks and destroys all of the fresh water. So God is even taking away the water supply from his creation, from those who dwell upon the earth, who have rejected him, okay? So again, I think that that's what this is. A simile isn't a real or literal thing, but it's symbolizing something. It's like something, but that doesn't mean it's not a real, it's, it's not a mountain, but it's like a mountain, more than likely probably a meteor. Now, notice also the third. You see a third of the sea became blood, a third of the creatures in the sea died, a third of the ships. In the next slide, I'm going to show you that this is intensification. Remember back in Revelation 6, you saw a quarter of the earth's population die. In the trumpet judgments, you're going to see eventually a third of mankind dies. There's an intensity to this judgment that's increasing. And so what that shows us then is that we don't have recapitulation. Some believe that the first six seals 
open up to the trumpet judgments, and the trumpet judgments are simply covering the same period of time. So every seven, you're just going through the seven years of tribulation. The seven seals, the first seal would be at the beginning, the last seal would be at the end. When you get to the trumpet judgments, it brings you right back to the beginning again. But that can't be true. Why? Because we're seeing intensification. We lost a fourth back in Revelation 6. Now we're losing a third of everything. So that shows us, no, it's not simply recapitulation, but there's a progress all the way through the seal trumpet and the bold judgments. Okay, we'll look at that in the next slide. Now, notice here it says the sea, the sea became blood. And again, this should remind us of the first plague that God had sent upon Egypt. He did the same thing there. Notice what it said in Exodus seven seventeen through 18. It says, Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. Then it says in verse 18, the fish that are in the Nile will die and the Nile will become foul and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. So again, we see a replay of this Exodus motif. Just as God had judged his enemies back during the first Exodus, he's going to do it again within the 70th week of Daniel. Now, it's very interesting. Turn your Bibles ahead to Revelation 11. Verse 6, because I want you to see that this idea of turning the water to blood is something that's going to occur again in this interlude. Now, there's an interlude in Revelation 10 all the way to 1114, because anytime you get between the 6th and 7th, whether it's the 6th and 7th seal, 6th and 7th trumpet, or 6th and 7th bowl, you get yourself an interlude. And in this interlude, remember you have those two witnesses? Well, those two witnesses end up prophesying, they're preaching the gospel, and they have the power to perform these plagues as well. And so listen to what it says of the two witnesses. Revelation eleven six says, These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to what? To turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. So over and over and over again, you and I are to see that what God did at the first exodus, he's going to do again. So I want you to see that that theme isn't just one that we're making up. It's there time and time again. This is the last exodus. It's the last one. And so if people don't cry out during this time period, they're lost, aren't they? It's the last time. It's the last hurrah. The final call, whatever you want to say, right? Okay. Now, the second trumpet, one thing I want to point out here is notice the third again. I want to move to an interpretive point, and that is, again, this idea of intensification. Let me show you some things that I think often elude us when we just read you know, maybe little parts of the Bible here and there. We sometimes miss some of these grander themes that help us interpret the Bible. Here's what I mean. Notice in Revelation 8, 9, this is, again, the second trumpet that we just looked at. It says, And a third of the creatures which were in the sea, and they had life, they died, Right? Well, when we get to the second bowl, notice in Revelation 16, 3, it says the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became blood like that of a dead man and every living thing in the sea died. So what are we saying then? Well, what we're saying is that certainly you can have recapitulation. If the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls are all covering the same time period, That doesn't make sense because here, from the second trumpet 
to the second bull, you've gone from a third of the sea creatures dying to every sea creature dying. So they're not covering the same period. What's happening is through the 70th week of Daniel, things are getting worse. Does everyone see that? And we're gathering the evidence, not from some scholar who said it, but from the text itself. You and I are being good scriptural detectives when we say, hey, wait a minute. If such and such a scholar is right, and all that's happening during the seal, trumpet, and bull judgments, as we keep going over the same period of time, just with different details, why do we have more dead at the second trumpet or the second bull than we did at the second trumpet? Okay? And I just think we're being good students of the scripture. So, of course, recapitulation doesn't work. Now, let me show you another case of this. Notice that the fourth seal, remember that was back in Revelation chapter 6? We had a quarter of mankind died. Well, as you're going to find out, when we get to the sixth trumpet, a third of mankind dies. Again, there's more that's dying during the trumpets. And it shows, again, throughout the 70th week, things are going to get worse and worse and worse. Now, here's two very important interpretive points that we can glean, I think, from this. Number one, this has never happened before in human history. When, does anyone know when in human history every creature in the sea died? That it was all turned to blood? So what about all this nonsense that says, well, these things happened during church history? You know, hold, held to those views were some of the reformers. And so then if I don't teach that and people say, well, you're really not reformed. I say, well, wait a minute. No, the reformers didn't reform far enough. Right? How can, when, when is it in history, during church history, that all of the creatures in the sea died? I think it's legitimate to ask the question. If someone's going to hold to a historical approach to the book of Revelation, which maintains that from Revelation chapter 4 all the way to 22, those are things that occurred in church history, simply ask them that question. When did all the creatures of the sea die? Well, of course, they never did. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21, let me read, he says, For then there will be a tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. It's the worst, the worst time period ever. That's what Jesus was describing in the Olivet Discourse. You can't have the worstest, right? You can only have one worst. The worst has not occurred, is not occurring now. Therefore, what? It's in the future. Therefore, what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24 was in the future. And so you see then the future interpretation of the book of Revelation is the only legitimate one. Why? Because that's the author's point. And so now we're gathering our data from the scriptures rather than, well, you know, one scholar says this and another scholar says that. The reason I point that out is, remember, years ago, I was part of a non-denominational Bible study. And they would say, well, we're not going to get into the futurist, the historist, the idealist, preterist, those different approaches, because you know what? They all have some truth in them. Er, Not true. The preterist approach says that these things occurred in 70 AD. Ask somebody who holds to the preterist position, when did all the creatures in the sea die in 70 AD? Where's the evidence that you have for that? Well, of course, they don't have any. So again, that's why the futurist approach is to be preferred. It is the legit. Yeah, go ahead, Eric. And you just, 
you just can't allegorize it either. I, I, I have not argued with a preterist, so I don't know if sure. that would. But I'm imagining, that, I'm imagining that they would say, well, all of the fish dying, that that, uh, that refers to something that's kind of esoteric, you know. Yeah, you just right. can't allegorize it. Exactly. Otherwise, you know, and if you do, it's a great point you make. If you do allegorize it, now the reader is in charge of the interpretation rather than the author. And that's the problem with the idealist approach. In the idealist approach, it's so symbolic. Here's what they think. Here's the big divide. And the idealist will say the book of Revelation is primarily apocalyptic. Now, it certainly is apocalyptic in the sense that it's a revelation. But John himself says it's a prophecy. It's a prophecy, he says. In fact, where does he say it? Revelation 1.3. The book is a prophecy. John says it's a prophecy. In Revelation 1.3, we should take the author who wrote it seriously when he says that this is a prophecy. Now, let's think about Isaiah 53. When it says that in Isaiah 53, we would have a suffering servant who would be crushed, was it literally true that he died on behalf of sinners? Yes, it was literally fulfilled. Or how about Micah 5.2, where it talks about this ruler who would come forth from everlasting, who would be born in Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? He was born in Bethlehem. It was literally fulfilled. And so, again, that's how God works in prophecy. He literally fulfills these things. That's all, that's all that we've seen throughout history. And so certainly God is going to be faithful again to his promises. Yeah, Richard, yeah, Eric, it's just kind of amazing to me that you can't go along with any group to the nth degree. Every group messes it up, it seems like, to a degree. And so you, gotta, you can't be a part of you. We're reformers, of course. Sure. But you can't go along with everything the reformers say because if you do, you blow it in the... Exactly. So much in, so that you got to just be true to the scripture and not true to any man or any particular Amen. group. Amen. Well said. That's right. So a lot of scripture. Yeah. Uh, Luann. Oops, hold on one second. I'm just kind of, when it uh, talks about in Revelation 8, 9 and a third of the ships, and you'll probably get to this when you do Revelation 18, but in Revelation 18, 17, it says, and all the shipmasters and seafaring men, this is when Babylon will be destroyed, you know. But um, so is that the two-thirds left? I would take it that way exactly. Yep, there's certainly going to be survivors. And so there's no contradiction. We would simply say, well, there's part of the two-thirds. Yeah, exactly right. But you can still see that a third is bad. <laughs> Think about it, That's a lot of boats in the water that are going gl- 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 down to the bottom. A third of all the ships in the world, wow, that's a lot. And, but you're right. I think that that's the way I would understand it is two-thirds are still, still there. Yep, absolutely. Now, what I've done basically with this interpretive point is I've showed us that the futurist interpretation is the only way to go. Okay, but now within the futurist camp, you have some who say, well, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls are all covering the same time. That's called recapitulation. So you get done with the seals, you come to the trumpets, and you start back at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. You get done with the trumpets, and you come to the bowls, and you start back again at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. Well, this proves that that's not the case. There is a progression throughout the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Why? Because things get worse. Okay? So you've learned today then, interpretively, that the futurist approach is the only way to go. And within the futurist camp, recapitulation is not a good option. No, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls progress throughout the entire, entirety of the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, so these are subtle clues that I think we can glean from texts like this. Okay, all right, now any other questions before we move on? All right, excellent. So let's move on then to the third trumpet. 
A third trumpet here is Revelation 8, 10 through 11. It says, The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the waters and on the spring of waters, the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Now, notice the description here. It's a great star that fell from heaven. And again, we're asking the question, well, what in the world would be this great star that was falling from heaven? Well, we are given a clue with another simile. Notice the simile here. It says it was burning like a torch. Now, that doesn't mean it was a torch. Again, it was burning like a torch, right? And so we use the same language. If I um, see an airplane or you listen to a person who describes an accident, They'll say, yeah, I saw the airplane crashing and it was on fire like a torch or it was on fire like a, you know, a bonfire. They try to explain it the best way they can. Well, that's what John is doing here, okay? But what's very interesting is the term torch there comes from a Greek term, lampas, which is very interesting. It's used in the ancient Near East by many different writers when they would talk about the meteors that they would see. They would describe them in the same way, a lampas. Okay, so I think more than likely what we have here is another meteor. And if that's correct, here's the pattern that I think we have. And the second trumpet, we had a meteor. I think that that's probably what that big burning uh, mass was that looked like a mountain. That was probably a meteor that affected the salt water. Well, here you have another meteor that affects what? The fresh water. So again, God is using his creation to take away any hope that the unbelievers have. Their hope should be in him, not in the creation. Again, what does Romans one twenty five say? They worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator who is praised forever. Amen. And what God is showing them is that your faith was misplaced. You look at today in our culture today, people are believing and trusting in the creation rather than the creator. I remember Bob one time gave a message and I actually saw someone stand up and walk right out of the church because he said, um, well, how did you say it, Bob? The earth is not your mother. Yeah, we're trying to save his voice. So, I, but yeah, the earth is not your mother. The, the earth doesn't care for you. But there is a God in heaven who does. And that's what God is showing them, that if people even at the late hour within the 70th week of Daniel would turn to him and repent and come to faith, yes, they would be saved as well. Okay? Now, one thing I want to point out here is notice here we have this meteor, And this meteor apparently is called wormwood. Now, what's very interesting is this wormwood is a bitter plant that was, there was many different species of it um, in Israel. Okay, so you had many different species of this wormwood plant, and it was known to make things bitter. Now, what's interesting about that is when you turn to passages like Jeremiah chapter 9, in fact, turn to Jeremiah 9, 13 through 15, God said that when his people disobeyed him, he would give them wormwood to drink. He would give them bitterness to drink in their cup. And I want you to see that because I'm going to show you now we have a reversal. Now he's giving it not to the people of Israel, but again to the world. Okay? Jeremiah 9, 13 through 15. It says, The Lord said, Because they have forsaken my law. Now this is his own people. This is Israel. They have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice or walked according to it, but have walked after the stubbornness of their heart and after the bales as their fathers taught them. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them poisoned water to drink. So now that sort of poison, wormwood to drink, is given not to Israel, but to the rest of the world. So whenever you think of that pattern, what God used to do to Israel, he's going to do to the whole world. I always think of Isaiah 13, because there, the day of the Lord is depicted as a worldwide judgment. But then God gives you a narrow view. He says, yeah, I'll give you an example that I'll be faithful to that worldwide judgment. In the short term, I'll judge Babylon. So the near in the Old Testament was always a foreshadowing of the far in the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? Now, I want to show you in Exodus. Turn your Bibles to Exodus. I want you to see that God did the opposite for his people at times, where he would take their bitter water and he would make it sweet. And that we see this at the waters of Marah. Marah means to, to grumble or to have bitterness, right? So this is at Exodus fifteen twenty two through 25. The Israelites had come out of Egypt. They had crossed the Red Sea. Now they're grumbling because in the land of Shur, the wilderness, they find bitter water. Exodus fifteen twenty two. It says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. Now let's stop there. Notice the term tree there. Everyone see that in your Bible? The term in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation, is exulon. Now, exulon is very interesting because it's a term that's used later for the cross. Okay, so, for example, Bob has pointed this out in, I think, um, a Sunday school or a sermon. Now, the term exulon for cross, for example, let me just read this to you. You I don't want you to turn away from Exodus, but just note this in 1 Peter 2.24. Peter says, he himself, this is Jesus bore our sins in his body on the exulon, on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. Okay? Galatians 3.13, remember that whoever hangs upon a tree is cursed. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The term for tree there is exulon. Now, I think it's very possible that there may be a metaphor here or an image that God with the tree makes the bitterness of the waters sweet for his people, okay? What's very interesting is because people reject that cross, because they reject God, they reject Messiah, what happens in the 70th week of Daniel is they have sweet waters. And sweet waters doesn't mean it tastes like honey. It simply means they're drinkable. But what he's going to do for his enemies is he's going to take sweet waters and make them bitter. And so it's either or. Either you're a friend of God you're one of his people, and he makes the bitter water sweet, or you're an enemy, and he makes the sweet waters bitter. It's either or. And it's that way all the time. And ultimately, of course, this water is a metaphor for life. Without water, you can't live, right? Now, it's literally happening. I'm not saying it's not literal. It's literal. But it's also a metaphor, I think. So that's what I wanted to show you is that, yes, there's an either or. God either makes your water sweet or he makes them bitter, doesn't he? That's what he does. Now, one thing I want you to think about, too, is that there are other ironies in the scripture that seem to imply that God revels in this reversal idea. 
Think about Jesus' name. What does Jesus' name mean? I mean, it's Yeshua, right? Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves, right? Well, because the world rejects Yahweh as salvation, they reject Jesus. Where are they brought, according to Joel chapter 3? They're brought to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is Yahweh Shophet, Yahweh as judge. So either you get Yahweh as salvation, you believe in the Son, or you get Yahweh as the judge. Again, it's either or. And so what I'm trying to show you is that, yes, there really is either or. In the postmodern world, they don't like it. They want to say, well, you know, there's something for God, for the Hindus and the Buddhists. There's something that God has promised to every person. And so let's stop this either or language. That's what we hear all the time. But no, in the scriptures, it is either or. It's binary. Your waters are either going to be made sweet or bitter. You either get Yahweh as salvation, Jesus, or you get Yahweh as the judge. It's Jesus. He's both. He's either your salvation or he's your judge. So that's the idea that I want to convey through these trumpet judgments is that it's either or. Either you're with God or you're going to be subject to these judgments. Okay, now let's move on to the fourth trumpet, the final one we want to look at today. Revelation 8, 12 through 13, it says, The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now, I'm going to come back to this passage in just a moment, but I want to just focus for now on what I have highlighted read. Notice it says the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck. How does God strike a third of those things? I don't know. Okay, But he will do it, and it will happen. Okay, now again, this should remind us of the ninth judgment or ninth plague during the Exodus. What was the ninth plague in the Exodus? Well, God made the land dark. Let's read about that. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 22. I just want you to keep seeing that these cosmic disturbances are going to be, of course, much more grand within the 70th week of Daniel but they were already alluded to all the way back in Exodus that God would use his power to darken the land. I remember last week Bob was talking about lightness versus darkness. To turn to God is to turn from darkness to light. Isn't it interesting when he pours his wrath upon people, he takes away the light, and what does he give them? He gives them what they want. He gives them darkness. And so darkness routinely is a symbol of God's judgment. But again, this isn't just a symbol. It's literally happening. But the literal happening also points to a greater reality. Okay, Exodus 10, 21 through 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. Wow, that's dark. Verse 22, So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Okay, now... I want you to skip ahead in your Bible to Isaiah 13. I want you to see where it was promised within the day of the Lord that God would do something similar again. So this exodus forms, in a sense, a pattern that would occur again during the day of the Lord. Isaiah 13, verses 8 through 10. Notice here in Isaiah 13, if you turn to Isaiah 13, 8, we have a reference to the day of the Lord. It says, They will be terrified... 
Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. So let's stop there. Remember in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3, the Apostle Paul says that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them like labor pains. Well, notice the reference to labor pains again there in Isaiah 13, 8. In fact, notice, do you have in your version the term pains? If you highlight that or underline it in the Greek, that's the term odin. That's the term that's used as a technical term for the day of the Lord. It literally can be translated labor pains. Jesus uses it in his Olivet Discourse when he says these are the beginning of birth pangs. Paul uses it. So certainly it's used with reference to the day of the Lord. Now, why is it used? Let's remind ourselves. Because what the Jews understood, what was revealed to them, is that the 70th week of Daniel would be like a pregnancy. It'd be like birth pangs. And what would be birthed after it would be the great messianic age where the Messiah would rule and there'd be peace among the nations, etc. Okay? So it conceived of the 70th week of Daniel as birth pangs. Now, when do the birth pangs come? You don't know. A woman may be pregnant. We're in the stage of pregnancy as the church for sure. But you don't know when the birth pangs are going to come. Okay, that's a sudden thing. Now, continue on in the verse. Notice it says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. So now we have a reference to the day of the Lord. Cruel and fury and burning and anger to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its, its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven, this is verse 10, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. So there during the day of the Lord, it was promised that you'd have these cosmic disturbances. Does everyone follow me? And so sure enough, we see that very thing happening now within the 70th week of Daniel. But here's the rub. Here's what I want to turn to. This is a cause of a lot of problems. I keep dropping things. Oops, sorry. (laughs) That was my cough drop. There's a lot of trouble in interpreting these cosmic disturbances. Let me explain why. You have several of them that occur within the 70th week of Daniel. If you remember back in Revelation chapter 6 of the sixth seal, you had cosmic disturbances. Turn your Bibles. Let's do a reminder. Turn your Bibles back to Revelation 6.12. Revelation 6.12. Again, this is going to help us interpret the Bible better, I think. During the sixth seal, we said that that was within the 70th week of Daniel there was going to be these cosmic disturbances. Revelation 6.12, it says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal. That's, of course, Christ who broke it. And there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole, whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell on the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. So there you have the first set of cosmic disturbances within the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? Now, what we're seeing today is in Revelation 8, 12, at the fourth trumpet, we have the same thing. Okay? Now, at the fifth trumpet, you also have a darkening of the sun. And this cosmic disturbance is actually created by smoke coming up from the abyss. Now, again, as I pointed out last time, I mentioned this. This isn't just Eric Dalma getting carried away with his, uh, his Weber grill in the Kingsford. <laughs> this is quite the smoke, is it not? Right? It's going to darken the whole sun. 
Okay, so this is a cosmic disturbance of the highest order, okay? Now, what we're going to see then again is turn your Bibles to Revelation 16, 8 through 9. I want you to see another cosmic disturbance that occurs at the fourth bowl. Revelation 16, verses 8 through 9. It says, The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Now, it's very obviously important that they should have repented, should they have not. But notice here it says that you had the sun, again, affected. This time it affects people by scorching them. So again, I would say that that's a big cosmic disturbance. The sun is doing something that it normally doesn't do. Now, the reason I'm laboring these points is within the 70th week of Daniel, you have four cosmic disturbances of the sun, moon, and stars. Okay? Now, here's why this is important for our interpretation. Turn your Bibles to Joel chapter 2, and I want to show you what a lot of arguing about the book of Revelation and the the timing of the day of the Lord stems from. It stems from Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, specifically verse 31. Now, this is an important verse because Peter cites it at Pentecost. So this is something we have to get down. Joel chapter 2, verse 31. Joel promised this at the end time. Remember, God would pour out his spirit upon all mankind. He says in Joel 2, 31, he says, The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, does everyone see the term before? What some scholars would say is that's a timing indicator. And what that would indicate then is that you have to have a cosmic disturbance prior to the day of the Lord. Therefore, what's all this nonsense then about imminence? That's how they would reason. So the reasoning goes, and specifically you'd have pre-wrath proponents who would hold to this view. They would say, look, the first cosmic disturbance occurs at the sixth seal. Therefore, the day of the Lord, because that has, has to happen to before the day of the Lord, according to Joel 2.31, the day of the Lord cannot start until after that sixth seal. Is everyone with me? Now, the way I would handle this, because I do believe the Bible teaches imminence, and because it teaches imminence in so many times, for instance, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-3, that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. The term kleptos, a thief, is a thief who relies upon suddenness upon stealth. You don't know when it's coming. So how on the one hand can you have this idea that you don't know when it's coming? But on the other hand, it seems to imply that there's going to be a precursor. Well, the way I think that we can resolve this is by looking at that phrase in Joel 2.31, where it says, great and awesome day of the Lord. When God speaks through his prophets of the day of the Lord, he uses the day of the Lord two different ways. Sometimes a day, specifically with the day of the Lord, speaks of a broad period of time. Let me give you an example. If I asked my grandpa what gas was like in his day, how much did you have to pay for it? He says, well, it's only about a nickel. He's not talking about a 24-hour day, is he? I'm talking about, broadly speaking, grandpa, in your day, the day that you grew up, the era, many years, what was it like paying for gas? Well, it was a lot cheaper than it is now. But I remember asking him once, I said, where were you the day that Kennedy was shot? Now, I'm using day two different ways, the same term, but one way I was using it for a broad period of time, but in the other way I was using it for a specific 24-hour period. God does the same thing with the day of the Lord. 
Sometimes the day of the Lord is a broad period of time. And what I'm claiming is that the broad day of the Lord begins at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. And the broad day extends, we know, all the way even through the millennial kingdom. How do we know that? Because when you get to 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter links the burning of the heavens and the melting of the elements to the day of the Lord. So that's a broad period of time, is it not? But then there's an unusual day. The great day of the Lord, that phrase is only used twice in your Old Testament. It's used once in Joel 2.31, but I want you to see the other reference, Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Turn your Bibles, if you will, Malachi 4, 5 through 6. This is the only other time that the term great and terrible or great and awesome day of the Lord is used, that phrase. Again, Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Now, this is the English Bible. It's different numbering in the Hebrew Bible, but it's the same passage. Malachi 4, 5 through 6. It says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Okay, and we'll just stop there. Now, the great and terrible day of the Lord, that's the same phrase that was used in Joel 2.31. What I'm claiming is that that great and terrible day is the specific day where the Messiah would return. And the reason we can know that is because in context of Joel chapter 2, you'll see that God leads the nations to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is around Jerusalem. Well, when does that happen? Well, when the Messiah returns to fight for them. So the great and terrible day of the Lord is the unique day when the Messiah himself will return. Is everyone with me? And that's what I'm pointing out at the screen. That would be this one day at the end of the 70th week where the Messiah comes. Now, we have further evidence that this is indeed the case from the book of Revelation. So here's the connection I want you to see. Turn your Bibles ahead to Revelation 16:14. I want you to see this phrase, the great day of God. The great day of God is associated with the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's Revelation 16, 14. Here's the gathering of all of the nations for what battle? The battle of Armageddon. The battle in which Messiah comes. It's a unique day. A unique 24-hour day where Yahweh himself will stand on the Mount of Olives and he'll fight for Israel as a warrior does in the day of battle, as it says in Zechariah 14. It's a unique day. And so it says in Revelation 16, 14, for they are spirits of demons. So the demons are doing this, right? Performing signs which go out to the kings. Now here's humanity. The kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Now, when does that occur? Well, that occurs at the very end of the 70th week because Messiah comes back. So what I'm saying is when you read Joel 2.31 and it says that the sun will be darkened and the moon will be turned into blood before the great day, the great and terrible day of Yahweh. The great and terrible day of Yahweh is this day here. So lo and behold, yes, you have a whole 70th week that's characterized by these cosmic disturbances. And so they do precede the narrow day of the Lord, but they do not precede the broad day of the Lord. Does everyone follow the distinction? So the broad day of the Lord, where you have wrath poured out on all humanity, is a signless event. It will occur without any warning. Just like the days of Noah. What did Noah's generation, did they have something in the sky that they could look at? According to Hebrews eleven seven, no. The only thing that they had was the preaching of the word from Noah. The only thing that the world has today is the preaching of the word. 
There's nothing to tip them off as to when the 70th week will break forth. Now, one interesting point I want to make, the final point here, is there's one more cosmic disturbance. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 29. He says, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. Now, a lot of people have tried to take the sun being darkened and line it up with one of these trumpet judgments or the seal or the bowl. But notice, he says, it's after the tribulation of those days, right? So it's after the 70th week of Daniel that the sun will be darkened. So that shows you that there's even another cosmic disturbance. So the 70th week of Daniel is characterized by cosmic disturbances, right? One, many of them occurring before the great and terrible day, but one even occurring right after where the Messiah himself returns. Okay, so that's what I want you to see. So when someone says, nope, the 70th week of Daniel is not the day of the Lord, because after all, the sun is to be darkened and the moon be turned to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. What they're failing to realize is the distinction between the broad day of the Lord that starts here and the narrow day that begins right here, or is a 24-hour day. Is that clear? Anybody have any comments or questions on that? I think that that's the way to resolve it. Therefore, you have imminency, no warning before the broad day of the Lord, but you do have things that will tip you off prior to the narrow day, which is that 24-hour day where the Messiah returns to fight against his enemies and to save his people, to set up his kingdom. Okay, all right, so we'll move on from there then. Now we come to the fourth trumpet. The fourth trumpet, it says the fourth angel sounded. Let me get rid of my pointer here. And a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. Then I looked and heard an eagle flying in mid heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So we already covered the first part of this, the sun, moon, and stars. But notice it talks about this eagle flying in mid-heaven. First of all, how should we understand this eagle? I just take it literally. There's an eagle that ends up flying in mid-heaven, which is the position where the sun would be at noon. And for some reason, this eagle is able to speak. And lest we think that that's too funny, remember God spoke through a few other animals in the past, didn't he? I remember he used a, a prophet's donkey, right? Balaam's donkey, he spoke through him. So here God is even using this, this eagle to proclaim judgment. But what's very interesting about the eagle is the eagle is often used two different ways in the Old Testament. Sometimes the image behind an eagle is that God swoops down to save his people, like in the Exodus. But sometimes it's that he's swooping down to judge his enemies. And again, we're left with, well, which is it for us? Okay. In fact, let me have you turn your Bibles, if you will, to Exodus 19, 4. I, excuse me, you know what? Let's turn to, instead, for the sake of time, turn to Habakkuk 1, 8. I want you to see an example of the eagle swooping down for judgment. Again, it's a metaphor in the Bible for judgment or salvation. Again, Habakkuk 1, 8. It says, their horses are swifter than leopards, talking about the Chaldeans. These are the Babylonians that are going to judge Israel, judge Judah. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horses come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. 
So notice the eagle there is depicted as an instrument of judgment. Okay? Now, the reason it's being depicted as an instrument of judgment is because God is angry with his people for idolatry. Well, here you have an eagle flying in mid-heaven. Notice on the screen, and what's it crying out? Well, its message is woe, woe, woe. Okay, now woe, 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 that's the superlative use of woe. You can't get any more woe-ish than that, right? And it also corresponds to the last three trumpets. And remember, when the last three trumpets come, they begin unleashing, God does, the demonic horde. That's going to be very bad indeed. But notice very carefully, these three woes, just like all of the other judgments, who are they coming upon? Well, it says, to those who dwell on the earth. Remember that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is used five times in the book of Revelation. And every time it's used, it refers not to every person, but strictly to unbelievers. It's a technical expression for unbelievers. So those demonic hordes, you'll see, will not affect those who have been sealed on their forehead, the 144,000. They will only affect those who are the unregenerate. And so, again, God is saying with this eagle preaching the gospel, either he's going to be an instrument of judgment upon those who reject him, or he's an instrument of salvation for his people. And so that begs the question, who is God for us? Turn your Bibles real quickly, Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 11. And by the way, Bob and I are going to get into great detail about Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 11 at some point in the future. And it's going to be very exciting. But let me just read this to make a point that God longs to save his people. And he has saved his people. Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 through 11. God has been depicted as an eagle who saves his people out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 11, it says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. That's the best translation. We'll talk more about that later. But he says, for the Lord's portion is his people. So this is the only allotment that he has. It's Jacob. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Let's stop there. The pupil of his eye, that's the, the, um, the very tender part of your eye. And if you were somebody living in the ancient Near East and you had to live through a sandstorm, if you were blinded, if your pupil was taken out through sand, you'd die in the, in the sandstorm. You couldn't see to move. And so to guard that was very precious. If you didn't guard the pupil of your eye, you're done. And so the pupil of God's eye is Israel. And so certainly he's going to defend them. That's the idea. They're precious in his sight. And so it says in verse 11, like an eagle that stirs up the nest that hovers over its young, he spread its wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. In fact, notice here, Exodus 19.4, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. They were the enemies. And he says, And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So God is often depicted as an eagle who will swoop down to save his people. But what's very interesting is the idea of birds. The term for eagle, by the way, can also be rendered vulture in certain contexts. What's very interesting is these same animals, these eagles and vultures, are depicted later in the book of Revelation, literally feeding upon the enemies of God. Okay, so I want you to see that. Here, God can be your judge. Notice what happens to those who reject God and his salvation through Christ. Revelation 19, 17 through 18. 
It says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble, come assemble for the great supper of God. Now let's stop there. What's going to happen at that point is all believers go to what supper? The marriage supper of the Lamb. But what's happening to all the enemies of God? They're at a supper too, but they're not eating with Christ. They're being fed upon by the eagles of the, the air and the birds of the air. It says, so that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of the horses of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, both small and great. Either God is your savior or he is going to be your judge. Either you are a partaker in the marriage supper of the lamb, you're part of that feast, or you'll be feasted upon by the birds. Those are the two feasts. And so, again, what we have is a binary system. There's either the sheep or the goats. My very first day when I was in seminary at Bethel Seminary, I had a man named Doug Paget that Bob ended up debating. He was a postmodern, and he said, we have to stop binary reductionism now. And all the students clapped. They cheered. They went wild. They were so excited. Yes, we don't have to have the goats or the sheep. We can be more nuanced than that. That was the idea. Well, to those who say that you can't know truth, that's very appealing. Because then they can tell people, it doesn't matter what you do with Christ. It doesn't matter what you do with the Bible. You can still be okay. But what the scriptures keep showing us is that it's either or. Either God makes your waters bitter or he makes them sweet. Either God saves you like an eagle or he has the eagles and the birds of the air feed upon you as one of his enemies. That's the great binary system that we see in the scripture. And so today, when we read this, let's remind ourselves of the hope that we have in Christ. This should remind every single person the need to repent and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation so that God is your Savior, Jesus, and not your judge, Jehoshaphat, right? Okay. Now, Mike, do you have a question? Did you have something? Oh, okay, gotcha. No, that's good. Anybody have any questions or we'll... We'll shut her down. That's the grand point that I think we can take from these verses here today. Okay, let's, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these things. We thank you that you're a God who continuously warns, even to those who are living during this dreadful time. We thank you, Lord, that to us who trust upon your Son, you are a great eagle who's brought us out of Egypt and bringing us to the promised land. I do pray for my brothers and sisters here that they would be convicted to turn from sin and to turn from Egypt and to turn to focus their attention on the great promises to come. I pray, Lord, for those that don't know you, our friends, our relatives, our loved ones. We pray, Lord, that they would repent and find your son, that they'd find sweet waters, not bitter. They'd find you, Yahweh, as salvation and not their judge. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.